Okay, we're again in the final section of the letter. Uh, I'll remind you that the overarching theme of the letter is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. And we're in that section of the letter where the focus is on the fact that living on the basis of Christ's sufficiency impacts our lives in some very practical ways. And we really have to come to understand that everything that Paul dealt with in the uh, opening uh, portion of this letter is not just abstract theory. Uh, when he focused on, on Christ and who Christ is, it was with the purpose in mind of deepening our understanding of who our source of all things is. And that the more we come to know Him, the more uh, we'll begin to understand all that we are and have in Him. And as we come to understand those truths and appropriate them, they do change the way that we live. Uh, it is an outflow of His life in us. And I don't, I really don't believe you can come to a deep, personal, intimate understanding of Christ without Him changing you. The more you come to know Him, the more you gain His heart, the more you gain His mind. And the more His ways begin to shape your ways. Uh, in my life, you know, as I, I've been blessed to know some people who had a very close walk with the Lord. And I saw the transforming power that he had uh, in their lives. And I, I know from personal experience, the more I've grown in my understanding and of him, the more I've made him the focus of my life, the more he's changed me. And it's been, not been the focus on fixing my life that has brought about change. It's been my focus on Him. He is the transforming one in our lives. Now, we've been talking about the fact that Paul speaks of putting off the old man and putting on the new. He's putting off that nature, that... Uh, we inherited from Adam when we were born into this world and putting on a new nature, that one that uh, is in union with Christ. And I, I've talked about the fact that the new man really has a symbiotic relationship with Christ. It cannot function apart from him. Anytime we try to live independently... No matter what we set out to do, we're always dropping back into the old. Because the old is a life that lives independently from God. It may be trying to do things for Him, but it's doing it through its own strength. And it's that, you know, that old life wants to be independent, but it is, as much as it wants to be independent, it is in bondage to sin and to the flesh, and it's influenced by the world. But our new life in Christ lives in total dependence on Him. Now, let's face it. Um, most of us, our daily life is a mixture. 
There are areas in which we depend upon him. And then there are areas where we fall back into our own self-reliance. Now hopefully as we mature in the Lord, we spend less time in the realm of the old and far more time in the realm of the new. But it is a process. And uh, unfortunately, we often, and I think about, I talked about this in an earlier study, we often compartmentalize our lives. There are certain areas of our life that we have very much brought Christ into. There are areas of our life that we still rely very much on ourselves. And generally, the areas we rely on ourselves in are the ones where we feel we have real strengths. And I've told people over the years, your strengths are your greatest weaknesses. Because they're the areas you'll take your eyes off the Lord. They're the areas you think you can handle. And over time, he'll have to teach you that. Uh, But uh, I don't want to get back into that a lot right now. We've talked about that in the past. But, you know... Paul talks about, you know, as we put off the old and we put on the new. We're to, you know, putting on the new makes it possible for us now to have a a, a heart of compassion. The more I come to see myself in Christ and the more I come to understand that I came to him as an utter and complete charity case. I brought nothing to him that he needed. And the more I come to understand, you know, all that I have gained by his compassion for me, the more it makes me compassionate towards others. And the more I come to experience his compassion in my life, the more it begins to produce uh, kindness in my actions towards others. And I'm I'm still growing in that. You know, I can at times be unkind, but I think the Lord oftentimes has shown me more and more the need for kindness in dealing with people. And... You know, the more I come to understand who I am in Christ and put off the old and put on the new, the more it produces an attitude of humility. And we've talked about humility in the past, that it's not taking a low view of ourselves. It's not, being, it's not viewing, uh, looking at ourselves. It's about being focused elsewhere, first of all on Christ and then on others. And humility produces meekness. Pride produces harshness. Humility produces meekness. And and it also produces patience. The more I come to understand, you know, who I am in Christ and what has made this all possible, the more patient I become in dealing with others. The more I begin to understand how much time God has invested in me bringing me to the place I'm at, 
the more patient it makes me with others. You know, in dealing with the students up there in Waukesha, I had to constantly keep in mind that God had spent 50 plus years bringing me to a certain point and it was unrealistic for me to expect students who might have been five or ten years old in the Lord to, to suddenly be where I'm at or to get there in two years of schooling. The more I've come to look at things through the eyes of Christ, I think the more it's made me patient uh, with others. Now, that's basically what we dealt with towards the end of our time last week. But I want to pick up in verse 13 of Colossians 3 this morning. Where Paul says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, you know, this exhortation from Paul shouldn't surprise us. Given the fact that our new life is lived in union with Christ. And this being the case, our lives have the capacity to be consistent with His. And uh, uh, consequently, consistent with the way God deals with us. And how does God deal with us? Well, first of all, He is long-suffering. He bears with us. I've been a believer now for, what, 62, 63, 62 years, I guess. And I've come to see over the years how long-suffering God is with me. How he has hung in there with me. He has never forsaken me. Even when I've struggled, even when I've failed, even when, you know, I've walked away from him for a while. He has never forsaken me. He has never given up on me. He has always been there for me. You know, um, I forget how many years ago there at uh, school I went through adrenal fatigue and and uh, had depression some of it pretty severe but you know God was with me every step of the way a song that meant a lot to me that year was one that says uh, that uh, you know we never walk alone that uh, and just Never walk alone. Never once did he leave us on our own. God is faithful, you know. And, you know, I, I found that he was faithful. He was always there. Never failed me. Never once. And no matter what we do, no matter how many times he does it, <laughs> or we do, do what I mean, he hangs in there with us. I don't know about you, but I've had things that I've, you know, uh, struggled with and failed in over and over and over and over and over and over. And in 60-some years, that's a lot of overs. 
And yet God has never given up on me. He's hung in there with me. And God desires that we do that with each other. That we don't give up on each other. That we are willing to long suffer with each other. To bear with each other. To show forth that which God is showing us and wants to show through us to others. Secondly, Paul says he always forgives. And in 1 John chapter 1, John, I think, emphasizes the fact that there's really no reason why you or I should ever be unwilling to acknowledge and face up to our sin. Because God is always faithful and just to forgive it. Forgiveness is not a problem for God. Because every sin you or I have ever committed or ever will commit has already been paid for. God does not struggle with forgiving us. The problem we face in a relationship with God is not with his willingness to forgive, but with our willingness to see sin through his eyes. In 1 John, John talks about if you want to have fellowship with God, you've got to be willing to walk in the light. The light, you know, one of the main characteristics of light is it reveals. If you want to walk close with the Lord, you've got to be willing to let his light reveal to you a lot of things in your life that are ugly and you really don't want to see. And our fellowship is often lost because we don't want to acknowledge our sins. We don't want to see our sins. We don't want to deal with our sins. We want to pull away from God's light because his light has become too uncomfortable for us. But he always forgives. And Paul says, as we put off the old and put on the new, we ought to be always willing to forgive. We need to deal with people in that way. And you know, the Lord taught me a lot about that when we were at the school. Um, very early on, I guess in our second year there, we had, and at that time I was on the ad- administration and we had some sin, uh, students that came forward acknowledging a moral failure. And the, you know, the, the response of leadership was, well, we need to basically uh, dismiss them from the school. Even though they'd come forward, they'd acknowledge it. It wasn't they, something they'd been caught doing. It was something they came forward And I know they told me to call the young man's father and tell him he was going to have to uh, leave the school. And talking to his father, who's with the mission, and a dear brother in Christ. And I'll always remember him saying, why do we feel we have to treat each other like this when God never treats us like that? 
It really struck me. And I said, okay, let me go back and talk with the others. <laughs> and I went back to, to talk with them. And at first they said, well, you were supposed to just tell him his son was, had to leave. You weren't supposed to be willing to negotiate. But I did. I began to talk with them about it. We had a lot of meetings. And I remember in the midst of it all, praying, God, show me your heart. And I've told my students since then, pray that, that prayer carefully. Because God ripped my heart out. And I still feel it. I would wake up in the middle of the night weeping. Because... God so impressed on my heart how it rips his heart out the way we treat each other. That when someone sins and they come to us, we're unwilling to forgive. And the thing I heard over and over again, there's got to be consequences. Well, look up the word consequence. It means a result. And it doesn't mean the result has got to be negative. When we sin and we acknowledge it to God, there is a consequence. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And over the years, I had several students who would come to me and acknowledge they had cheated on a test. And, you know, the first time that came up, I was told, you've got to fail them. They've got to fail the course. And I said, why? They came to me. They acknowledged it. This is an opportunity to teach them about how God treats us. And there was this great fear that if we did that, it would just encourage people to cheat. It never did. I saw some hearts really turned around. You know, with that couple, and I'll, I'll, I think at a later time I'll go into a little more detail on that. But, you know, there was this thought that if we don't dismiss them, it's just going to... Uh, encourage others to fail morally. But the next year, her best friend, who was dating a fellow, came to me and said, Will you meet with me and my boyfriend? Will you and Jonelle meet with me and my boyfriend? We don't want to make the mistake my friend made. She said, I sat in the car with her as she screamed and beat on the steering wheel and said, I have ruined my life. And she said, I never want to go that route. It didn't encourage her. The fact that we, you know, were willing to work with her. It encouraged her to come and seek not making that mistake. See, Paul says, as we put off the old and put on the new... Put on compassion. Put on forgiveness. Treat others the way God treats us. Let them see God in us. 
Now certainly there are instances where someone is unwilling to acknowledge their sin and we have to confront that. But you know, I didn't run into much of that. I ran into students who the Holy Spirit convicted the living daylights out of them. And they came to me with a heart, you know, of, of sorrow over what they had done and a desire to be restored. And I saw it change their lives. Man, if God were as unforgiving as we are at times, we would be in trouble. Because God is so gracious to us. Yes, sweetie. I just wanted to share, we were meeting with this guy there. He walked up, he would come to our house and we met him for a couple of years and he was married to an unbeliever. And I said to him one day, Joel, why do you think Becky won't accept the Lord? You're growing in Him and you love, you're loving on her and things are good. He said, I asked her that and she said, because I've watched Christians and they shoot their wounded and I don't want any part of And that too struck us so deeply that she would have that glimpse and of course not all of us do that. But there's a lot of that in Christendom. And yeah. You know that. Probably some of you have been wounded by such things. Yeah. And um, it was so sweet to get to love him and see him come out of a hard, horrific situation. And she never did. She would not hear it. She didn't want to know the gospel. She didn't want any part of it. And she finally left. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Now, people are watching us. They're watching us. And they're watching to see if there's something different about us than what you see out in the world. Now, Paul goes on in verse 14 to point out that the ultimate way in which the new man is to follow the pattern of his source is in putting on love. And beyond or over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The overarching principle by which our identity is to be guided is agape love. Now everything we've talked about thus far falls under that umbrella, but it includes far, far more. Now, I think I've defined agape several times. I'm going to read in a minute a a, a definition by Wiest, Kenneth Wiest, which is a little more extensive. But in a more simple way, just to say agape places a value on others and acts with their highest good in mind. It is not so much an emotion as it is a value-driven action. Now defining it, here's how Wiest writes. The one word that indicates its character is preciousness. Preciousness, not fond feelings, but seeing the value of someone and holding them as precious. 
which God does. Agape is a love called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object love. It's a love of esteem, of evaluation. It has the idea of prizing. It recognizes the worthiness of the object love. It's a love of approbation. It is a love devoid of sensuousness. The noblest word for love in the Greek language. In contrasting Philean and agapen, I would say that Philean is a love of pleasure. Agapen, a love of preciousness. Philean, a love of delight. Agapen, a love of esteem. Uh, Philean, a love called out of the heart by the apprehension of pleasurable qualities in the object love. Agapen, a love called out of the heart by the apprehension of valuable qualities in the object love. Philean takes pleasure in, agapen ascribes value to. Philean is a love of liking, agapen a love of prizing. Now it's interesting that agape was not a very common term in classical Greek. Regarding this, Wiest goes on to write, the word had its content of meaning tremendously increased by its introduction into the New Testament. There was no word in classical Greek which the Bible writers could use which would portray the love that God is for the reason that it is a pagan language. Therefore, the writers had to select a word and pour into it the additional content of meaning which they needed for that purpose. Led by the Holy Spirit, they selected agapen, a word never very common in classical Greek. Occurring in Homer only ten times, in Euripides three, not at all in Aeschylus or Sophocles. Into that word they poured an additional content of meaning by means of the context in which they used it. So they really increased the, you know, the understanding of agape by the contextual use of it in the New Testament scriptures. So while it's largely missing from classical Greek writing, it is the predominant word for love in the New Testament. It is the word that almost always describes God's love. There is in John, I think it's 16, where uh, Christ says that the Father phileos us because we have loved him, Christ. Uh, and so uh, that love of pleasure is used with regards to God in that passage. But that's really the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Every other place, agape is used. It is also the predominant love that we as believers are to show forth. God doesn't say we've got to have really fond feelings for everyone uh, in the body of Christ. But he does say that we are to count as precious everyone in the body of Christ. And be willing to pursue what is best for others in the body of Christ. Even if it involves personal sacrifice to do it. See, God calls us to agape. He doesn't call us to phileo. Phileo just comes naturally in certain relationships. There are certain people we just enjoy being around. Uh, they bring, bring us pleasure. Hopefully we bring them pleasure. Uh, we just enjoy each other. 
Agape, though, is very different. And it is that value-driven type of action. It's not defined so much by emotion as it is by action. And this kind of love was exemplified by God. Of course, God, you know, Christ talked about loving our enemies. Well, that's what God did. John 3.16, God so loved, completed action, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The world that was at enmity with God, that was the enemy of God, God placed a value, not on the world system, but on the every man, woman, and child in this world. He placed a value on them. And acted seeking their best through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm here to tell you, agape love does not flow from the old man. The old Adamic nature is self-seeking. Any value it places on others has a self-serving motivation. That's why you'll see, you know, uh, these uh, who uh, want to be known as philanthropists, they make known to everybody that they're given this money. Why? They want the recognition. They're seeking something through it. True agape flows from our new identity. It's only as I live my life in union with Christ that I'm able to come to value those around me with the same value Christ placed on them. It's only on the basis of His resources and under the guidance of His Holy Spirit that I can even know how to truly act with the highest good of someone else in mind. I don't have that ability in myself. I had a friend in Ireland who worked with what would be referred to as juvenile delinquents or something over here, kids off the street with a lot of problems. He told me one time, he said, I don't know how unbelievers work with these these kids. Because he said, if I didn't have the Holy Spirit to guide me, I wouldn't have a clue what some of them need. He said, it's only the spirit within that shows me what is best, what is needed. And in the last half of verse 14, Paul describes agape as the perfect bond of unity. And the word translated perfect here stresses the actual accomplishment of the end in view. Paul is saying that agape actually accomplishes a bond of unity between believers. Now we hear a lot of emphasis placed on the need of unity in the body of Christ. Paul tells us how unity is achieved. It's achieved through agape love being shown towards each other. If if you know, if uh, as believers, we truly value one another. If I value you, and you value me, 
And if I'm willing to sacrifice to pursue what's best for you, and you're willing to sacrifice to pursue what's best for me, then the barriers that stand in the way of unity are broken down. But again, the putting on of agape is tied to putting off the old and putting on the new. I don't care how many sermons you preach to the old Adamic nature about the importance of loving each other, it ain't going to happen. They may try for a while, but it will fail. You know, it's interesting in, I think it's First Peter, where Paul, I mean Peter, talks about husbands loving their wife and do not become embittered. Why does he throw that little phrase on the end? Because I think that helps at times measure whether we're agoping our wife on the basis of the new man or not. See, the old Adamic ally may strive to put on agape. And I can say, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, give my wife this great importance. I'm going to sacrificially serve her. But the old life, after a while, if it sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices, and it doesn't get a return for all its sacrificial uh, service to the wife, it becomes embittered. I've done this for her, and I've done that for her, and I've done this and this and this, and she won't do this. We become embittered. When the old life tries to fake it, it will become embittered after a while if it doesn't get a response. Because the old life is always pursuing something for itself. And so, while agape achieves the end result of unity, that end result can only be achieved by putting off the old and putting on the new. And that only happens as we live in union with Christ. Now, I won't get through this next part completely, but I'll get started on it. You know, as we live in the realm of our new life in Christ, we're to utilize three safeguards that Paul tells us it provides. Now, it's interesting. Again, Ephesians and Colossians were written about the same time, carried by the same messenger. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the Christian armor, and I think we're all familiar with that. And in it, he focuses on seven different provisions that we have for our defense. In this letter, he doesn't come at things that way. Instead, he focuses on three safeguards that we are to utilize in our Christian development. The first is found in allowing peace to rule in our hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, in his letter to the uh, church in Ephesus, Paul talks about peace, but there it is described as our shoes. 
as we go into battle. And of course, when we think of armor, we don't necessarily have shoes at the top of the list. But it was something of great importance. In battle, you know, the, the, those uh, battles weren't fought in vehicles and things in that day. They, uh, of course, you had some cavalry, but most of it was foot soldiers. And to freely move in battle, the soldier needed the protection on his feet, to protect him from stones and thorns. You know, if he's kind of gingerly walking along, trying not to stub his toe, and the, the enemy has shoes on, he's going to be mincemeat, basically. And peace is equally important as we face the spiritual battles of daily life. The believer who has no peace will never be able to move out in his Christian life without, com- I mean, with confidence. Confident Christian living begins with knowing that we are at peace with God. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It says we are totally at peace with God. There is no enmity between us and God anymore. But God provides us with more than simply peace with Him. He gives us peace to be experienced in each and every situation. Do not be an- Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's the way he deals with it in in Ephesians. In Colossians, Paul again draws upon peace, but he approaches it in a different way. Instead of telling us to wear it as our spiritual shoes, he tells us to let it rule in our hearts. And the Greek word translated rule has to do with acting as an umpire. W. Vine says, the word had to do with arbitrating or deciding, as deciding all matters in the hearts of believers. So, while Ephesians focuses on providing confidence and freedom and movement in our Christian walk, Colossians focuses using peace to guide us in each and every decision we make. W.H. Griffith Thomas said, the word translated rule suggests That which settles differences, especially where there are any conflicts in thoughts and feelings. And you know, over the years, Janelle and I have found the peace of Christ to be a a terrific guide. We actually uh, used it this past week, getting ready for Janelle's surgery. We were praying the, uh, the other morning. And I just told her, I said to her, you know, uh, one specific thing about the surgery, I said, I'm just not at peace about this. And so, you know, it prompted us to talk to the doctor and to uh, get some changes made in w- what she was planning to do. And, you know, after all that, we were both able to say to each other, we are now at peace. And time and again in life, when we've faced decisions, you know, Joe and I will ask each other, do you have a peace about this? 
And if we don't have a peace, we don't go in that direction. We wait until God gives us a peace about what he wants us to do. Now, in order for that to, to play out, we've got to be walking with the Lord. The old man's not going to get that peace. But as we have our eyes on the Lord and are walking with Him, He can use the very peace of Christ to guide our uh, decision. Let me, uh, just in closing, read one last statement by Griffith Thomas. If it be asked how peace is able to do this, perhaps the explanation is just as peace with God is the result of our acceptance of Christ as Savior, so the experience of peace in the soul in union with Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit will at once settle every difficulty, resolve every conflict, and show us what is the will of God. In this case, there is a special reason for such divine peace, the essential unity of the body of Christ, the church, and to this peace we are told every believer is called. Okay, there's two other safeguards. We'll look at them next week. Uh, But uh, we're out of time. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you just for this new life we have in Christ. Lord, may it really begin to transform us. Lord, as Miles Stanford once said, people have a right to see Christ before they make a decision about him. And the only way they're going to see him in this lost and dying world is by those who carry his impressions upon them. May we be some of those people so that others will see him and be drawn to him. Lord, we look forward now to the service ahead of us, the time we can spend praising you in song, and the time we can spend looking into your word. Lord, use it in each of our hearts and lives the way you so desire. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.